Let's consider God's word together, my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord. Revelation 19, the hallelujah chorus. Revelation 19, the hallelujah chorus. Father, thank you for your giving us this portion of your word. There are few passages that ought to thrill our soul more than a passage like this. So, Lord, we ask that you would allow us to enter into this passage of great delight. And, Lord, that you would form our hearts in such a way and calibrate them in such a way that we would desire you above all other things. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. The best part of waking up is Folgers. The most wonderful time of the year is Christmas. The most delightful day in all your life is your wedding. And the happiest time of all, well, that's the stuff of Revelation 19. Last week, we considered Revelation 18, and we found that it was full of tears. Everyone's weeping and wailing, tears. Well, by contrast, Revelation 19 is full of cheers, Just think with me for a moment about the words that come up in this passage. Four times we hear it said, Hallelujah! We hear Amen, praise, rejoice, exalt, give Him glory, fall down, and worship. This is an extremely happy text of Scripture. To understand this very happy text, we must realize that there are two women in this text. One is a harlot, verse 2. One is a bride, verse 7. And one of them is corrupt. And one is clothed in fine linen, pure and bright. And what Christ is going to do with these two women is the reason for the hallelujah chorus in this chapter. This chapter is divided into two parts between verses 10 and 11. And this first part is divided in two parts as well between verses 5 and 6. So, this morning my desire is to consider the two points of the first part of this chapter. And I summarize this whole first portion with a single word that's repeated again and again and again. Hallelujah! Just so you know, hallelujah is a Hebrew word. So while I usually don't teach you Hebrew and Greek, this is a Hebrew word. And it means praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. That is his personal name. And in these two parts of this first portion of the book, we find two reasons why we should praise him. Hallelujah, the Lord deserves our praise. The reason why, it's stated for us in verse 2. And that is that we should praise the Lord for Christ's righteous judgment. We should praise the Lord for Christ's righteous judgment. Verse 2 says, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great harlot. This is the first reason we're supposed to sing hallelujah. Now, you may be thinking as I have thought recently, we're talking about the judgment of Babylon again? We've been talking about this for a long time, and we have. But I need us to all realize the fact that we've been talking about this for a long time because the text has been talking about it for a long time. 
All the way back to chapter 14, verse 8, it anticipated the fall of Babylon. And then beginning in chapter 17, we have this long portion of the fall of Babylon, where the angel says to John, I will show to you the judgment of Babylon. You say, why is it so important that we see what Christ does to Babylon? Well, this is a warning. It's like that warning on the pack of cigarettes. Caution, this will kill you. It's a really important thing. We're not supposed to miss it. By contrast, remember this book ends with two cities, Babylon and the New Jerusalem. While the one is meant to be a warning, the long extended statements on the New Jerusalem is supposed to create inside of us longing, longing to be there. Warning concerning one, longing concerning the other. But concerning Babylon and it being judged, this is a matter of praise. Because when Babylon falls, heaven is singing. Look at verse 1. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! So the Lord deserves praise for the judgment of Babylon. And we're going to find four reasons in this text why he ought to be praised for his judgment of Babylon. The rest of verse 1 tells us the first, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, what does that mean? You know, there's sometimes that you read a passage of Scripture and you think those are the right words and those are religious words, but I don't know what they mean and how they fit. What do we do with this? How does it relate at all to the judgment of Babylon? So let me illustrate this. One of my favorite things to do every four years is to watch the Olympic Games because the best of the best from along the globe come together and compete. Now, normally, I don't care how fast a person can run, swim, or cycle, or how far a person can jump or throw something. But when it comes to the Olympics, it's, it's just different. When you see people crush Olympic and world records, it's just breathtaking to watch. It's amazing. And that kind of greatness just demands our admiration. And likewise, there are some things that God does that just demand our admiration. They rise so far above what anyone else could possibly ever do that just make us stand in awe of Him. Now, I made this point to the Boy Scouts yesterday morning. I talked to them about how long it takes them to earn some of their badges. It takes a long time. But God had the power, has the power, to create And he created the universe in six days. You see, that is no small feat. It's something that only God can do. And that's how we're supposed to categorize this judgment of Babylon. That's something that only God could do. Her judgment is superlative. It displays God's perfections. So when Babylon is judged, in her judgment, we see a salvation that only God could provide. In her judgment, we see a glory that only God could gather to himself. In her judgment, we see power that only God can demonstrate. The judgment of Babylon is not a simple thing. It's not a small feat. It displays something that only God could do, his perfections. So we should praise the Lord for that. Her judgment is superlative. Also, we see in verse 2 that her judgment is moral. It displays the justice of God, for his judgments are true and just. We live in a world that condemns the innocent and acquits the guilty. That's not how God is, though. 
God cannot be bribed. God, God does not overlook what is wrong. Those who deserve punishment will be judged. And Babylon deserves punishment because the text says in verse 2, she corrupted the earth and she shed the blood of the saints. She encouraged people to do what God hates, and she executed those who do what God loves. And for that, Christ is just to judge her. That is the second reason that we ought to sing hallelujah, because of Christ's just judgment. Third, we see in verse 3, her judgment is eternal, and this is displaying for us God's vengeance. Look at verse 3. The Bible says, once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This punishment is final, complete, irreversible. And all those who are allied against or with her and rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ and refute a bow to him, they'll be punished likewise. This is a sentence that is not going to be reversed. This is destruction like Sodom and Gomorrah that is not going to be reversed. It's done. It's been decided. So God's decisions are final. His vengeance is displayed. Fourthly, the fourth reason we should sing hallelujah to the Lord is her judgment is celebrated because it is what delights God's servants. Look at verse 4. We're going to see that his servants agree that Babylon's judgment is a reason to praise the Lord. Verse 4 says, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen. Hallelujah. Hey, so when we pray together and one person leads and we close the prayer and everyone amens, what that shows is that we're all agreeing with the prayer. Amen means, so be it. I agree. And so what we see heaven doing is concurring. They're saying, I agree. That hallelujah chorus is right. I'm along with it. And this celebration is appropriate for all of God's people. Look at verse 5. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God. That's what hallelujah means. Praise God. All you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. So this hallelujah is supposed to be sung by everyone. I want you to notice how are God's people described. We see their relationship to God. We see their reverence for God. The relationship to God is referred to in terms of service. They are God's slaves. He is the Lord. He is the master. They are the servants. Secondly, we see the reverence. They fear him. They take God seriously as compared to ignoring or defying God. And just by way of reflection, is that how you describe your relationship with God? He's the master. He's the Lord. He calls the shots. You're the servant. Would you say that you take God seriously or that you take something else far more seriously? God's people are supposed to consider themselves His servants and supposed to fear Him. And we're supposed to praise the Lord for His judgment of Babylon. Now, now does that sound strange? We're supposed to praise God for judgment? Does that kind of... I don't know if I like that. Does that feel odd? How are we supposed to be so delighted about judgment? 
Well, let's illustrate that with our current COVID situation just for a moment, okay? For now, we've almost been a year in this COVID situation. And you've said it. We've heard other people say it. We're sick of it. We're ready to be done with it. It's all getting very old. And if COVID were to disappear today, we'd be pretty happy. We'd really enjoy that. We'd like things to be back to normal. But imagine with me if this crisis lasted our entire life. Imagine if it lasted all of our children's lives and their children's lives and beyond that. Imagine what life would be like when COVID is normal, when social distancing is normal, when masks are normal. And then if COVID disappears thousands of years from now, I think we might feel differently because we would never known anything different. COVID would have been normal. Even so, when we think of human history, the first deaths that occurred in human history must have caused men a lot of discomfort, a lot of sorrow. It must have been really difficult to see that the wages of sin is death because Adam and Eve knew what it was like before there was sin and how death and sin were not normal. But now, thousands of years later, death and sin are very normal. We read in Scripture that death or sin offers pleasure for a season. So there is a sense that when we are finally delivered from it all, that we might not have the joy that we ought to have because we're so used to it, because there are times that we give in to it. So I say that to say we need to continually pray for a heart that delights in God and despises sin. Because this call to praise God for judgment, it's meant to calibrate our hearts. We're supposed to be having a disposition towards God and towards what He hates that fits Him. That we love righteousness and hate wickedness. That we would delight when He puts away evil and everything related to it. So we need to praise God for Christ's judgment of Babylon. This judgment is superlative, moral, ethical, and celebrated with a hallelujah chorus. Now we're going to move from the first reason to the second reason to sing hallelujah. The first reason for it is now going to give way to the second reason to sing. This is verses 6 through 10, where we see that we should praise the Lord for Christ's happy union. Praise the Lord for Christ's happy union. Christ is going to be joined to His pure bride. As we look through verses 6 through 10, we're going to see the Lamb. We're going to see His bride. And we're going to realize the bride is ready. The marriage of the Lamb has come. Look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His happy union will coincide with His future kingdom. Look at verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crawling out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Now we should obviously already know that God reigns today as He has always reigned. We read that in the Psalms again and again and again. It has never been the case that God had a number two position in the world. Yet what is being celebrated here is not some general reign of God or God's specific reign in the hearts of His people. His reign here is His reign upon the earth. 
Remember back to the seventh trumpet in chapter 11, verse 15, where the angels said, the heavens said, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. What this is, is the happy union of Christ with His people will come as Babylon is destroyed and Christ's kingdom in this world is established. You see, for now, the omnipotent arm of God is stayed while people are given the opportunity to repent and believe the gospel. But one day, He's going to come and exert all of His authority. And He's going to rule and reign. And His happy union is going to coincide with the bride being ready. Verses 7 through 8. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to be clothed, granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You know, brides take time to prepare themselves for their weddings. They take hours doing makeup and hair, skin tone and nail color, dress and veil. I mean, it is an ordeal. For brides to get ready. And what's highlighted here is the clothing of the bride. Notice it says again and again, this is fine linen, bright and pure. And it's defined very specifically as the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, if you're carrying a King James, you may have missed that point, but it is very specific here. These refer to the righteous deeds of the saints because the saints perform righteous deeds. And I want us to draw two points from her description of this bride and her clothing. First, we learn that the bride prepares herself for this happy union through her righteous deeds. She puts effort into making herself ready, which for any bride, that's easy to understand by way of comparison. We also learn it was granted her, it was given to her to clothe herself. Now, this is pointing to God's gracious work in her. And this is yet another example, a biblical description of how progressive sanctification works. So we could run to Ephesians 2.10, for example, where we see that we are His workmanship, His workmanship, and we should walk in good works, which God has prepared beforehand. We have His work and our walk. That does not mean that we earn our salvation. It means that we have both the imputed righteousness of Christ and we have the organic righteousness that manifests itself in fruit, in righteous deeds that are lived out, such as humble obedience, humble repentance, simple faith, and loving obedience. And I want to expand on this just for a moment so we can appreciate this simply. The essence of these righteous deeds is that the saints simply, lovingly obey in response to God's Word. That's what it is. Children, for example, then, obey your parents when they say sit. It's that simple. But when we simply obey... That's actually the revival that we pray for when we pray for revival. Revival came to King Josiah and Israel when they obediently responded to God's word and reinstituted the Passover. Simple obedience. 
So we pray for revival. And that revival we pray for is that God's people would respond to his word by doing what he says. And that's how the bride makes herself ready. And what the joy here is, is that our obedient responses to what God has said to us in the Bible, he considers to be fine linen. That's just wonderful, the kind of change that God works in us. If there's more joy in Christ's reign and the bride's readiness, we see joy coming in verse 9. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And all those extra words in there, that is saying this, listen up, this is important, you need to get this. The invited are blessed. The marriage supper of the Lamb has come. Now a lot has been written on the Marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb and the contrast between the bride and those who are invited to the supper. I'll simply say at this time that from Revelation 21, the bride is made up above the 12 foundations and the 12 gates, which represent all of God's believing people, both Israel and the church. Here in chapter 9, verse 19, the focus isn't collective on the bride, it's individual on those who are invited. It's individual. You say invitations. We've all got invitations before. I've had an invitation to go to a local hockey game. I enjoyed it. I had an invitation to go snowmobiling. I enjoyed it. I got an invitation to go pull trees out of the woods. I enjoyed it. Get an invitation to go rip apart a bathroom. I enjoy it. This invitation here, This is from Jesus Christ who says, Come to me, all who labor and are weary, are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the best invitation of all. And what's highlighted in verse 9 is the blessedness, the desirability, the happy prospect of each and every person to be invited, to be joined to Jesus Christ. We must never think that God is ill-disposed towards us. He welcomes us. He invites us to come to Him. He says those who do, oh, they are blessed. The best part of waking up is Folgers. The most wonderful time of the year is Christmas. The most delightful day of our life is our wedding. But the happiest time that one could ever imagine beyond this life is when one is joined to Jesus Christ in perfect purity forever. And if I have communicated that point with the strength of this text, you might spontaneously fall down and worship. That's what John did. But don't worship the messenger like John did. Obviously, the messengers are esteemed, but they're messengers. The heart of the message is about Christ. This is about Christ. It's the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's Christ who is doing all these things. It is Christ who is doing things that cause us to sing hallelujah. So as we look at this blessed union that is to come, it evokes from us a hallelujah chorus. And that's what we ought to do, sing praise to God. Lord, as we consider this together, may you... 
be so kind as to allow all other things that fancy us, all the other things in this world that dazzle, to become dim. May you cause Christ to be desirable in our eyes. And may we long to be with him. And may we rejoice when he comes and sets everything straight. And we pray that you will do so soon in Jesus' name. Amen.